So this morning's texts, both the Luke text that we heard from Mickey earlier and this Isaiah calling narrative in Isaiah chapter 6, touch on this theme of hearing God's call. So I want to talk to you for a little bit about that this morning. Now, being a millennial, I'd much rather not call anyone at all or be called. Uh, We much prefer to text. If you'll ask a millennial or maybe one of my youth from Gen Z, we'll pretty much all tell you the same thing, and that is that texting is way better than calling. Um, So if you text me, I can text you back at my own convenience. I can respond more often than not while I'm doing 10 other things at the same time. I'll probably text you back while I'm listening to a podcast and walking my dog or planning out my grocery shopping for the week or something. So don't call me if you don't have to. I'd much prefer it if you would just text me. Well, friends, uh, this passage might look a little different had God decided to text Isaiah instead of calling him. This conversation between God and Isaiah, the worship experience that happens with these fantastical images of angels, this purification that happens to Isaiah and Isaiah's commissioning, these things don't come for or accommodate our convenience. It requires that we drop what we're doing, that we go to a quiet place, and that we listen. Now, our focal passage this morning starts off with the phrase, in the year King Uzziah died. And that is helpful to us because it helps us know when and where it's happening, sure. But that name drop of King Uzziah is also significant. King Uzziah was king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom, Uh, While Israel is divided into two kingdoms at this point in history, there's Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And King Uzziah is king over uh, this massive territory of Judah. It's economically strong. It has a minimal wage gap from the richest to the poorest inhabitants. It has a robust military and secure allies for now. Uzziah's success as king administrator, commander-in-chief of the army, made him ruler over the largest realm of Judah since the kingdom had been divided. But as the book of Second Chronicles tells us, King Uzziah lets this go to his head, and his strength becomes his weakness. Attempting to usurp the power of the priesthood, Uzziah enters the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar, and this is a privilege that is reserved to only the priest. So while this might seem like a well-meaning mistake, Uzziah knows exactly what he's doing. He's entering the only realm in his kingdom where his power does not extend. He's developed pretty much a god complex. He's seeking to taste the only fruit in the garden that was forbidden from him. Now when the high priest Azariah confronts Uzziah, it angers him. And as his anger mounts, leprosy breaks out on his forehead. And scripture tells us King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, dwelt in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And that's in Second Chronicles chapter 26. 
Uzziah's error seems representative of the state of Israel to the north and Judah to the south, as this first portion of the book of Isaiah is just fraught with God's divine sadness at the waywardness of the people. My people, God calls them. God's people had bowed down at the idols of musicians, entertainers, athletes, politicians, corporate executives, and even some preachers who called themselves prophets. Read the Old Testament narratives and you'll start to notice a theme. Wicked kings are often representative of a wicked populace. And Uzziah's overstep seems fresh on Isaiah's mind as his sudden encounter with God's heavenly host doesn't bring about joyful worship at all, but actual terror. Now, scripture gives us a lot of pictures of call narratives like this. People receiving these instructions from God, their grand marching orders, and yet these exchanges don't look like you and I might imagine they would. I, I like to picture maybe they would look like a graduating student who's marching proudly across the stage, feeling fully equipped to take on the world and embark on a new journey, but it's not like that at all. Instead, we see startled people, caught off guard people, hiding in the corner people, alarmed by the appearance of God, not ready for it at all. This is not like that, that interaction between Peter and Jesus on the, on the mountaintop at the Transfiguration where Peter offers to pitch a tent for Jesus and says, oh, it's good that we should be here, let's stay a while. No, this is a totally different kind of holy, holy, holy moment. The natural reaction to this kind of divine revelation, it seems, is confession. It's rattling off our shortcomings and our failures and becoming painfully aware of our limits. All of us are full of insecurities. We all have them. Moses told God he was, quote, slow of speech and tongue. Many scholars think that meant he had a speech impediment. Jeremiah's excuse was this. He says, I haven't yet learned to speak. I'm only a boy. We talked about that with the youth the other day. Isaiah told God, as you heard in, in the passage earlier, I am a man of unclean lips, God, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I really like Frederick Buechner's version of, of the passage. He, he translates it, I've got a foul mouth, God, and I come from foul-mouthed folk. Peter, in the reading earlier, tells Jesus, depart from me, or go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. There seems to be something about these intense encounters with God that causes us to reflect on this deep chasm between God and us. Holy God, sinful me. And I think maybe we should take a moment to define terms here so we're on the same page. I don't think that the prophet or the apostle Peter here are referring to sin as this list of bad things that we did wrong or maybe things that we did right but for the wrong reasons and God is this just omniscient Santa Claus keeping check of our rule breaking, right? I don't think it's that at all. I'm talking about sin instead as the summation of our human limitations in comparison with God's expansiveness and power. Our utter falling short, our utter humanity, 
our fears and our shame, our clumsiness, our frailty, our selfishness, our forgetfulness, our mortality, our limitedness, and our fragility all rolled into one. Coming face to face with this big God who isn't any of those things can't help but make us painfully aware of who we're dealing with and how drastically we can come up short. But God's response is what I might interpret. This is, this is just so interesting to me. I might interpret God's response as a divine shrug. Whether it's a purifying touch to the lips in Isaiah's case or Jesus saying to Peter, don't be afraid, as evidenced by Peter's net full of fish and Jesus' standing invitation to follow him, God doesn't seem too inconvenienced to work with what we've got. The calling to prophesy that Isaiah receives has long been a fascinating one to me. I spent two years of my ministry as a missionary overseas, and I've heard this text used a couple of times as a missionary sermon, and it honors Isaiah's fast response to God saying, here I am, send me. And I too wanted to just go and proclaim the good news in a foreign land. But the funny thing about this text is that Isaiah is actually being sent to his very own people, and the news that he has to tell them may be not very good. <laughs> In fact, it's pretty bad. The text describes Isaiah's future ministry as this. Go and say to this people, keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is utterly desolate until the Lord sends everyone far away and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Speaking truth to power is not glamorous. Isaiah is basically told, you will tell them the truth and they won't listen and their selective deafness will lead to their peril. In my first year of seminary, so many of my fellow fresh-faced seminarians wanted so badly to claim this title of prophet. But we came into our Old Testament class one day to meet the gentle rebuke of our professor Brent Strawn over at Candler, saying, beware of anyone who puts on the title of prophet. If you'll notice, nobody in scripture seems too eager to put that on, to deliver these messages. Being a prophet means sticking your neck out and taking a risk, often saying kind of scary messages. Prophecy is not predicting the future. It's not like Nostradamus. Prophecy means speaking the truth about the current reality and saying this is the direction you're heading right now. If you don't stop, repent, turn back, and change course. This is the destruction your actions and your choices are going to reap. Prophecy isn't telling fortunes for the poor or saying nice things to the needy. It's standing in front of kings and rulers and powers and principalities. It's sticking your neck out in front of people in scary places that you often have no right to be in. So beware of people who call themselves prophets but whose coffers are full, whose pockets are lined, or who have no scars. Because being a prophet will not make you popular. 
Luckily for Isaiah, there was some shred of good news, a silver lining for those who would hear it. His prophecy in chapter 6 ends like this. Even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains standing when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. I told you it was a shred of good news, and I meant just a shred. (laughs) Assyria is coming for Israel, and Babylon will bring an end to the Davidic monarchy, and only a stump will be left in an empty land. The rest of the book of Isaiah will bear witness to these events, but the Lord tells Isaiah that stump will be a holy seed. God tells Isaiah it's going to be bad for a while. A stump will be all that's left of this kingdom. But listen to me. I could work with Moses' speech impediment. I could work with Jeremiah's youth. I can work with your foul mouth. And I can work with a stump. What being a prophet really boils down to is not a fancy title. It's not about having a microphone or a platform. It's not about being eloquent. It's not about being pious. It's not about results whether or not people even listen to what you have to say. You do not control hearts or minds. No, what makes you a prophet is a word from the Lord, a song in your heart that you can't help but sing, a burning fire in your bones about the evil or the injustice that you see that you can't help but speak out against it. What makes you a prophet is a prophecy and the obedience to say it, plain and simple. So maybe you're here today and you're not exactly sure that you've had that holy, holy, holy moment. Or you're not sure what the song in your heart really is. You don't know exactly what it is that you're called to do or called to say. Or maybe you did once and now you're not so sure anymore. I'm sure all of us would like to know explicitly, maybe receive it in writing from God, (laughs) what exactly we're designed to do how exactly we serve this world. Maybe you are struggling to find your purpose in God's design. You're not alone. We've been talking in youth group about calling for the past couple of weeks, and it brings me so much joy to hear some of the youth talk who feel like they know exactly what God wants of them. Some of them know they have found their passion. They may not know exactly what that looks like or how it's going to work out in their future vocation or careers, but they do know that they are going to be somehow writers, performers, or teachers. And I praise God for that insight. I'm really proud of them. But also, when I was their age, I had no clue. And the clues I thought I had turned out to be maybe not a good fit for me or uninspiring as I got into college and started with internships. I went to study international business at the University of South Carolina and quickly realized that really it was the international part that appealed to me and the business part not so much. (laughs) So I've been there trying to find out what it is I'm meant to do and where I'm meant to be. But what I wish someone had told me when I was walking through that time trying to find my place in the world is this. Even if we don't exactly know what we're called to do, this moment between Jesus and Peter in the boat off the shore reminds us that even if we don't know what we're called to do, we do know what we are called to be. 
If you don't know what you're called to do or say, you can fall back on what you know you are called to be. A disciple, a child of God. A disciple is simply this, a student, someone who's called to follow in Jesus' footsteps and learn from him. It's a powerful thing that Jesus hand-selects his crew, and the folks that he hand-picks are not scholars or sages, they're just average Joes and Janes who bore witness to and eventually carried on Jesus's ministry. Peter was a sinner, he said so himself, but he could fish and Jesus could work with that. Sometimes God speaks in booming, scary, holy, holy, holy moments, but sometimes God speaks in a still small voice in the warm corner of your heart in a moment that brings you joy. Listen to your life, for the triumphs and failures that taught you who you are, what you're good at, what you love. God speaks through those things too. Frederick Buechner writes in his book, if I were called upon to state in a few words the essence of everything I was trying to say both as a novelist and as a preacher, it would be something like this. Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery that it is, in the boredom and pain of it, no, no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it, because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments, and life itself is grace. If you find yourself facing a precipice this morning, feeling a nudge or hearing a whisper of unknown origin, pushing you to speak a truth or follow a divine calling that you feel completely unprepared for, do not be afraid. God can work with what you've got. Even if all you can do is fish, God can work with that too. Amen.